Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Sadiek. And I'm Courtney Eck. And we are your hosts. And we are sisters. You were about to say you were Courtney Eck, weren't you? I think I was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, guys. I have a new puppy. I've been up since very, very early. I'm a little brain dead, so thankfully I don't have to tell the story tonight. That's, yeah. You get to sit back and relax and enjoy <laughs> the cozy confines of false imprisonment (laughs) (laughs) yum yay well this is part two of a really crazy story so if you haven't heard part one yet go back an episode and then come back and hang out with us here yeah yes definitely go back and listen to the first part if you haven't because you'll be hella confused otherwise Mm -hmm. all right you ready to take it away hell yeah i am very excited to take it away and just a reminder This is the story of the murders of Seymour and Arlene Tancliffe. And just a quick recap, they were found dead in their home. Well, Arlene was dead. Seymour was, you know, almost dead. And he succumbed to his injuries a couple weeks later and did die. And their son, Marty, was essentially immediately accused of the crime and put under arrest for the crime, despite the fact that there was evidence that Seymour's business partner, Jerry Stewerman, had clearly had something to do with it. The police never investigated him, took Marty into custody. And where we landed was at the end of the trial, right before they announced the jury's verdict. I can't wait to hear how this ends up. Oh, it's a lot. And I will say, I'm going to introduce a ton of characters. Don't get overwhelmed. All of the information is sort of leading in the same direction. I did include all of it because I think it's relevant and I want to try to do the story as much justice as possible. But if you're listening and you kind of zone out and realize you don't realize where you are, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) You'll, we'll get you there. We'll get to the other side of it. So don't get too overwhelmed and don't feel like you have to fully keep track of all the characters I'm about to introduce because I think you'll still get the information. You'll still get the gist. So after eight days of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Marty sobbed for several minutes before he entered the courtroom, the seriousness of his situation finally hitting him. Marty Tancliffe was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder and broke down again, sobbing into the table in front of him. The jurors had essentially ruled that he killed his father with intent, 
but his mother with depraved indifference, which didn't make sense and was inconsistent with the evidence presented. Hmm. One juror after the fact gave an interview explaining that they had made their decision based on Marty's testimony that, quote, Marty had said the first time he got blood on his hands was when he pulled his father out of the chair. But, she said, a photograph of blood stains on the chair showed that the person who got Seymour Tancliffe out of the chair and onto the floor already had blood on his hands. The truly strange thing about that statement was that there was absolutely no testimony from either side to back it up. Wow. Her other statements clearly showed that the jury was confused and filled in large gaps of the prosecution's testimony and evidence on their own. No. Yeah. And I didn't go into it, but they, they spent, you know, eight days, I think, deliberating, and they pulled back in something like 217 pieces of evidence. Like they really took their time and they really did their due diligence. But I think it's just such a clear indication of the chaos that the prosecution created in their evidence collection and presentation. And, you know, just like nothing really added up on any level. And it's really clear when the jury based their decision on something that had never been entered into evidence. Wow. Which is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. And it should be like an immediate mistrial redo, <laughs> you know? Well, yes, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. After the jury's decision was announced, Gottlieb received a tip that Jerry Stewerman's other business partner, Eddie Cavallo, had disappeared around the time that Jerry staged his death and that the disappearance could have something to do with the Tankcliffe case. Gottlieb was able to postpone sentencing for a month while he looked into the disappearance. He also got information that the jury was somehow being fed information during deliberation that there was no way for them to have otherwise, uh, like Sherry, his sister, uh, Marty's sister, being on the side of the prosecution. He was able to get a signed statement from two jurors outlining juror misconduct and how they thought one juror had a special relationship to the prosecution. That juror had also lied on his juror questionnaire, saying he'd never been party to a civil case when, in fact, he'd been involved in 10. On September 10? Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's and this, so a this guy, there. Yeah, and this guy didn't go into it again, but he, they saw this guy with p people from the prosecution and other places. I mean, like, he obviously had a relationship to the prosecution, and so they were pretty certain that the prosecution was feeding him information that he was then using to influence the jury. God, it's so dirty. Just oh, it like just gets left and right. So much dirtier. Hmm. On September 27th, Gottlieb asked for another postponement to further his investigation, which the judge granted. The judge heard the testimony of the two jurors and claimed that Gottlieb had misled him by saying he was presenting, quote, new evidence and essentially accused Gottlieb of fabricating a big, quote, frame up and that they'd entered into a, quote, new and dangerous era, the era of jury bashing. The judge did conduct a trial of nine of the 12 jury members. On October 23rd, Judge Tisch announced that the defense motion to set aside the verdict was denied. Mm -hmm. And this is still the judge that's angry about being, yes, like, not, not becoming being considered the, for, for district the district attorney. attorney. That's yeah, exactly okay. right, yes. So at that time, Marty was summoned to the bench and said, quote, I stand before you innocent of this charge. I loved my parents. I did not kill them. Mm. The judge then handed down the maximum sentence, 
25 years to life. This would mean it would be a total of 50 years before Marty would be eligible for parole. Poor Marty. Poor, poor Marty. He's 18 years old. 17. 17. Yes. He hasn't even turned 18 yet. Nope. He's still a kid. Yep. Lawyers immediately went to work on Marty's appeals, the first of which was submitted two weeks later. The appeal was rejected, but it had originally been a tie. Uh, Two of the judges actually wanted to dismiss the case entirely. And the tie was broken by a judge who'd been the protege of Judge Tish, the judge who'd handed down Marty's Mm -hmm. sentence. Jerry Stewerman, however, did quite well for himself after the conviction, and by 1994, he had 30 stores in his chain thanks to the help of his son, Harris. He eventually moved to Boca Raton with his second wife, and on his way out of town, he bought a car from a woman named Carlene, and Carlene would become a very important character in the case moving forward. In 1991, Carlene had gone to the home of the sister of the man she was dating, So she was dating a guy, and he was like, let's go over to my sister's house. And on the way, he was like, I don't like my sister's boyfriend. He's a creep. (laughs) And his name was Jerry Stewerman. Well, (laughs) so the sister lived with a man named Joe, who was into dope and was an alleged wife beater. At one point in the night, Carlene and Joe shared a joint, and Joe began to tell a strange tale about he had dealt dope with Todd Stewerman, and that he had been at the Tankliff murders when it happened. He said he was with a Stewerman, but didn't clarify if he meant father or son. He mentioned crouching down in the bushes and then heading to the Carolinas after the murder. Carlene kept this information to herself for several months until she met her boss's father, Bill Navarra, who was a private investigator who'd been hired by Gottlieb back in the day to investigate the Tankliff case. That's a coincidence. Oh, my God. There's so many coincidences in this story. And I'm convinced that Beltaire, Long Island, and Suffolk County, Long Island, is like the smallest place in the world because it's just people constantly (laughs) overlap in this case. Mm. After a few encounters, she finally told Navarra about her conversation with Joe, and he brought her to Gottlieb's office. It turns out that the Joe she was referring to was the guy who Jerry's son Todd had shot in the arm, the bill collector. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Which ended up sending Todd to prison. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, I forgot his name was Joe. Yeah. Yeah. So Gottlieb was confused and wondered why Joe would intentionally insert himself into the case. Um, And at one point, he'd even asked Gottlieb to represent him when that was all going down with him getting Mm. shot in the arm. Um, And Gottlieb quickly realized it was probably to keep a closer eye on how things were developing for the defense. Mm -hmm. They brought the information to the DA who agreed to investigate. And in the meantime, Joe called Gottlieb and said that the DA wanted to question him. And Gottlieb got scared and realized he might have created a conflict of interest for himself by, quote, agreeing to represent a man who may have committed the murder for which his client had been wrongfully accused. Jesus. (laughs) So he was reassured that Joe couldn't tie him up in a sham agreement and that he should stay away from Joe to keep it that way. Just don't. Do not further engage this guy. Mm -hmm. The investigation of Joe eventually led nowhere, Hmm. as did. So that story just... Oh, it'll come back. Don't worry. But yeah, the DA, they brought the information to the DA, and the DA was like, okay, yeah, we're right on it. Mm, Fizzle, fizzle, fizzle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. After two denied appeals and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent in his defense, Marty began to write letters to people and organizations who could help him. 
Mm-hmm. He offends, essentially, his family's like, we're out of money and this is not going well. And his uncle was like, Marty, you've got to start writing to people. You've got to start telling your story. Right. Is his sister, She's has all the inheritance and is like, yep. Peace Com- out. Yep. Not helping him at all. Nope. Nope. They're completely out of each other's lives. I'm taking notes for our future oh, arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> Sibling emancipation, back on the I'm table. Done. <laughs> Quote, he became a voracious student of his own case and a relentless advocate for his freedom. He spent hours in the prison law library and eventually got a job there working in his own case and the cases of other inmates, even helping one inmate win his appeal. Oh, man, it's total Shawshank Redemption. I know! <laughs> Marty. Marty. Oh, it just, wait, it gets so much better. In 1995, not yet. We got a ways to go, but eventually... <laughs> In 1995, he received a letter from a law student named Laura, who'd been studying his case and was extremely confident of his innocence. She presented a case to some associates at a law firm she'd been interning at, and they agreed to take on the case pro bono. They met with Marty and were blown away at his almost encyclopedic knowledge of his own case. They started to build their case by finding that, quote, the trial judge made a reversible error when, during jury selection process, he prevented Gottlieb from challenging the prosecution's expulsion of African-American jurors. Mm -hmm. This action violated rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court. They again brought the appeal, and it was again denied. God. They appealed again and again. And eventually their case was declined by the U.S. Supreme Court on December 11, 2000. Damn it. Strap in. You're going to be so saying what, that a lot. What year was he convicted? Uh, 1990? Yeah. The crime happened in 88. I think he was convicted in 90. Okay. So now we're 10 years into his yes. sentence. Okay. Yes. So Marty continued to write letters. He estimates about 50,000 in total. Oh my God. Yeah. And eventually got word that America's Most Wanted was looking for cases like his and was volunteering to test DNA for people who claimed to be wrongfully accused. Cool. Meanwhile, Marty's attorneys consulted with the Innocence Project, and they joined Gottlieb in asking Suffolk County to make available DNA for Marty's case. America's Most Wanted would only test one piece of DNA, So they had to choose wisely, and they eventually agreed to submit the hairs found in Arlene's hand. Mm. In yet another horrible setback for the case, the DNA came back that the hairs found in Arlene's hand were actually her own. Oh, God. Yeah. Bummer. Bummer. Can you imagine? You're like, the blood, the thing. Ah, Let's just do the hairs. Wrong choice. Also makes for bad television for America's Most Wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, then I'm, I'm thinking it's back like when the... uh, when Geraldo opened up <laughs> what's his head's vault, the vault, mobster's yeah. vault. It's completely <laughs> empty. <laughs> yeah, I'm also thinking back to the Craig Pyre, that douchebag. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that? I don't know. Um, yeah, and how they wanted to test DNA for his case, and he's like, nah, yeah, nah, you know. But here's Marty. Yes, good point. You know, does, desperately did not do it. Yes. Did not do it, and really and. Yeah, he can't. America's Most Wanted is the one that's going to test his evidence. That's bonkers. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. I'm on on fire tonight. Bonkers. I'm sorry. Bonkers (laughs) and douchebag. Here I am. (laughs) Keep keep them coming. Uh, Marty and his attorneys realized his best bet would be to find new evidence. 
And the best way to do that would be to hire J. Saul Peter, who is the co-author of the book that I got almost all of this information out of, who had found several witnesses to help in another case where a man was wrongfully convicted in Suffolk County around the same time that Marty was. Saul Peter spoke to Marty, and after their call, he recalled, quote, the innocence was coming out of his pores. Even over the phone, I felt it. The vibrations from this kid were, let's go. This is going to be good. <laughs> I love J. Saul Peter. Yeah. Another evolution of the case was that Marty's attorneys had all been promoted over the years, and so he was currently being represented by some of the largest firms in the nation with his pro bono commitment intact. Immediately, Saul Peter noticed the account that Carlene had shared of her strange conversation with Joe, who said he was at the murder. He inquired as to why the defense hadn't followed up more aggressively, and they said that the money had dried up at that point, so they'd done the best they could with the resources. Saul Peter immediately called Carlene, and her first response was, quote, Where have you been? <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. She recounted her conversation with Joe, this time adding that he'd said that there'd been a lot of blood, which hadn't been in her previous account to Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. Carlene agreed to a lie detector test and passed, confirming for Saul Peter that she had no motivation to lie about the conversation. He also interviewed Carlene's boyfriend at the time, who had brought her to Joe's house, who confirmed that he'd held back from sharing information himself at the time because he was worried for his sister's safety. Because remember, Joe is dating his sister. He said he didn't hear all of their conversation, but recalled hearing Joe say, quote, something about hiding in the bushes, being pumped up, watching a card game. They looked into Joe's past and found some charges for statutory rape, attempted grand larceny, and a string of burglaries committed with a kid named Glenn Harris. For one of the burglaries, they had used a Strathmore bagel truck, which did belong to the Stewermans. Hmm. Saltpeter followed up with Harris and received this letter. Dear Sir, what took you so long and what put you on to me? At this point, that is not important. What is important is that Mr. Tencliffe will be released soon as we can prove it. He's suffered enough. When I found out you were looking for me, I reflected back and did the math. I have some info. I believe my, quote, theory to be correct. And it's not just a theory. I know it. You know it. Martin knows it. And piece of shit McCready knows it. Can't forget Jerry either. In parentheses, even I can play detective. <laughs> so I feel I was wrong, too. I feel I don't belong here either, yet I'm guilty. I'm a drug addict and by society standards, a scumbag. To know Martin has been subjected to the shit pains me. All I got to do is look around. Yet time after time, I've subjected myself to this bullshit. Obviously, there is something wrong with me. And once and for all, I'm trying to nip this in the bud and put an end to this madness. I've been serving life on the installment plan. I was released now and again to hang out with scumbags and basically slowly kill myself. <laughs> I'm not getting the help I need here. I can cry out, scream, beg, and no one hears my cries. And they expect me to become a better person. As you can see, I'm extremely bitter. I'm looking for redemption, and I don't know if I'll ever find it through Martin, but it can't fuck me up more than I already am. Fly your ass up here in your jet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an arrogant, cocky bastard. My credibility is shot. I won't be trusted and or believed. I guess you can help me. I can use my intelligence when I need to. Deceitful, yes and no. Put it this way. I can be articulate. I want someone to pay. Yes, I'm angry. Nothing is going to give 13 years back to Martin. <laughs> It was a big political conspiracy. They knew. Yet an innocent man was sent to jail. They didn't play fair, Mr. Saltpeter. By the way, nice fake name. Only kidding. 
<laughs> I'm going to need a lawyer. I don't want to get implicated in this F-U-C-K-I-N-G travesty of justice. <laughs> I don't want to get personal. But what are you in this for? Who do you work for? Department of Justice? I'm curious as hell as to who put you on to me. At this point, it doesn't really matter. Call it fate or whatever. I'm going to have to implicate myself in a crime to corroborate my quote-unquote theory. I would need immunity. Just get up here. Sorry this letter is so long and drawn out, but I've been waiting. I've been holding it in and I can't any longer. Magnum P.I. Joke, ha-ha. Oh, joke, laugh, ha-ha. You better have a sense of humor, sir. It's the only thing that's been keeping me going for the last 12 and a half of 15 years. I believe I can feel compassion for another now. It has opened my eyes, a blessing in disguise. As far as I know, you're close and you might not even need me but I believe I can prove my theory. The thing is, will I be believed? As I said, either way, I can sleep at night. There's no blood on my hands nor demons of that sort tormenting my soul. Good night, Glenn. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Glenn Harris. Wow. So, (laughs) Saltpeter exchanged many, many letters with Harris to the point that he had to use other inmates' names as he maxed out his mailing privileges. Wow. Yeah. Eventually, Saul Peter agreed to visit and invited Harris's mother to join him on the nine-hour journey. Saul Peter met with Harris, who fairly quickly admitted to being the driver of the getaway car for the Tancliffe murders. He said he drove Joe Creedon, our boy Joe, mm-hmm. and Peter Kent, who was, quote, one of the scumbags I used to work with. He claimed he thought they were committing a burglary, and didn't know what had gone down until he heard about it on the radio. Saltpeter and Harris continued to correspond, and Harris sent more details as they emerged in his memory. Harris agreed to a polygraph, which he passed, and his team went to work on getting Amarty a new trial, fueled by this explosive new evidence. The team presented their motion to the DA at the time, and waited. The DA just sat on the information, And so the team knew they were going to have to make a big splash when they officially filed the motion if they were going to have any chance of winning. They sent the report to the New York Times and Newsday and officially filed it on October 2, 2003. The DA asked for two months to reply. The DA's investigators interviewed Harris to follow up on his story, and at the end of the interview, Walter Walkenthine from the district attorney's office said, quote, If the statement you gave is true, you may very well be trading places with Marty Tankliffe which confirmed Saul Peter's fears that the DA wouldn't conduct a fair investigation. So that was the DA's investigator that said that. In the end, yeah, in the end, the DA's office claimed that the new evidence was not credible. They had even interviewed Peter Kent, the other man named in the killings, who had been in solitary confinement the entire time, so he hadn't heard about the break in the story, and had started to cry when they questioned him but denied any involvement. So basically the investigators came into the room and he just immediately started crying, Mm -hmm. which is a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. They also claimed that if the new statements were true, they only outlined that other people had been involved, but did not prove that Marty was not involved. Isn't that (laughs) the best logic? Yeah, that's not how this works. Nope. Nope. So the team went back to work looking for more evidence and found a sworn statement from another inmate named Bruce Demps, who Marty had met in prison who claimed that Todd Stewerman had told him that his father had sent some Hells Angels buddies to commit the murders. They tracked down rumors that Jerry Stewerman had said to a waitress, quote, So what? I slit their throats. What are they going to do? Give me 50 years at my age? Oh my God. And 48 hours. I know. 
and 48 Hours reached out to do a story on the case, which would give them even more exposure. And the story ended up being six parts in total. I couldn't find them, but mm. I read a 600-page book about the case, so I didn't really have it in me to watch the 48 <laughs> Hours, even if I had found it. But it's yeah, kind it's of incredible. One of those, when I was looking at pictures, like I know I've seen it, it somewhere yeah. in the history of all of the true crime TV I've watched. They looked Absolutely. so familiar. But yeah. So yeah, familiar. Probably that six-part series. The defense convinced Harris to agree to testify without immunity and armed with this last piece, which was a major point that the DA listed as a reason to deny the evidence originally, because they said he wanted immunity. So that would, you know, he was doing it for immunity only. Right. So they submitted their response to the DA. While they waited, Harris was released from jail and admitted to another piece of information, which he'd previously held back. And I will say that he was extremely nervous. Like, as he's telling, he waited forever. He talked to a priest. You know, this is like constant process of him being like, I know it's the right thing to do, but I'm so scared of what could happen to me because I was involved. Right. So he admitted to another piece of information he'd held back on that one of the murder weapons was a pipe. So Harris and Saul Peter visited Beltaire, where Harris correctly identified the Tancliffe home and walked him through the evidence of the night of the murder and then pointed to a wooded area where he'd claimed they'd thrown the pipe. Saul Peter returned to the woods with his, quote, crime scene man, and they searched with a high-powered metal detector for three hours. They were just about to break for lunch, and Saul Peter said he needed a moment to relieve himself He found a discreet location and began to relieve himself when something caught his eye. Uh, Piss on the pipe. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have a pipe to piss on. (laughs) Quote, something rusty peeking out from under a pile of brush. Wow. It was the pipe. Holy shit. Don't get too excited, though. I certainly yeah. did. I was like, this is where it ends. But they sent the pipe in and it didn't reveal any DNA after all those years. But it still didn't hurt the defense. Right. Uh, at one point while waiting for trial to come in June, Harris relapsed on drugs after the head of his sober house, quote, took him out on a binge. The head of his sober house. Like, these guys just cannot catch a break. Right? No. And Jay was able to track him down in a motel room surrounded by the remnants of days of drug use. Mm. He brought him to a rehab center where he detoxed and resumed his medication for his bipolar. And then he then brought him to stay with a man named Father Ron, who'd encouraged Harris to testify in the first place and was someone he trusted. Unfortunately, his parole was violated because he'd missed some meetings when he was in rehab. God, are you kidding me? (laughs) No. Jesus. And he was sent back to jail. On July 19th, 2004, this is 14 years after his conviction, Marty's appeal hearing began again. Because this is a hearing and not a trial, hearsay evidence would be allowed, and the judge said he wanted to hear everything they had to present. Same judge? Um, no, different judge. Jay Salpeter spoke first and outlined everything he discovered, from his initial conversation with Carlene to meeting Harris and his slow unraveling of the actual events to Harris correctly identifying the Tancliffe home, to leading Jay to the murder weapon. He recalled his conversation with the employees of the Strathmore restaurant in Florida, the waitress who'd overheard Jerry say, so what, I slit their throats. What are they going to do? Give me 50 years. He also testified about a third-hand piece of information he'd received but had been unable to verify, 
that Jerry's daughter was upset that she was going to have to go to court and lie for her father about coming home and being let in by her at 3.15 a.m. on the night of the murder. The prosecutor was mainly interested in questioning Jay about Harris, of course, and studied Harris's seemingly endless stream of letters in which he referred to himself as, quote, a criminal, a drug addict, a deadbeat dad, and by society standards, basically a good old piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) He said in a letter to someone else, quote, yes, it's me again, the psychopath. I am crazy, insane, a psychobabbler. And in another letter, quote, I feel like I'm caught up in a Greek tragedy. I will probably make a terrible witness. I would need help with my credibility. I know. I know. So they questioned Joe Creedon, who, if you'll remember, is the man who Harris said was one of the men who killed the Tancliffs, and he admitted to being a bill collector for drug dealers, specifically Todd Stewerman, and that he'd begun collecting for him in 1989. Because remember back in the beginning, he claimed that Todd shot him because he refused to collect money for him because right. he didn't collect for drug dealers. He claimed he'd never met Jerry Stewerman despite signing an affidavit in 1990 in which he claimed Jerry Stewerman told him he was, quote, fucking with the wrong people when he turned down Jerry's $10,000 offer to drop the shooting charges against Todd. He claimed that he'd never spoken to Jerry and only spoken to Todd despite the fact that Jerry was named twice on the affidavit. Joe's ex-girlfriend testified that he was very cruel to her, that he'd beaten her, and that she'd once seen him light a drug debtor's face on fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. and he wow. thre- Yeah. And he threatened to do the same to her. Jesus. Carlene and John took the stand and repeated their claims that Joe had admitted to being at the murder and, quote, hiding in the bushes watching a card game. An inmate testified that Todd had told him his father had put a hit on the Tankleff family because he'd owed them money. He also claimed that Todd's girlfriend was having an affair with a prison guard, so Jerry had called a Hells Angels friend to deal with it. Mm. It finally came time for Harris to testify. Unfortunately, Harris pled the fifth to all the questions that could incriminate him, and his attorney asked the judge to grant him immunity so that he could testify, and that the DA's office was exercising a, quote, abuse of discretion by threatening him directly and through other inmates. He also said that it was hypocritical of the prosecutor to threaten to charge Harris with the crime while also claiming Marty had done it. The judge refused to grant Harris's immunity. Saul Peter was devastated by Harris's change of heart, and it was a huge blow for the defense. Bummer. I know. And I mean, I understand, like, the attorney was trying to show the hypocrisy of what Mm -hmm. was going on. And also, like, this guy, unless we give him immunity, it's not safe for him to testify. The DA is openly threatening him, you know, Mm -hmm. and claiming he did a murder that Marty simultaneously, you know, he was just like, it's not safe for my guy unless you give him immunity. And the judge said no. And Saul Peter was like, well, fuck, that's my whole case. Mm -hmm. So... Another man came forward and claimed that he'd installed cabinets for Jerry in 1989 and had overheard Jerry say, quote, something to the effect that he had already killed two people and that it wouldn't matter if he killed him too. The defense was trying to convince him. He said that to the cabinet maker? Like yes. Like threatening yep. the cabinet maker's life. Well, he overheard him say it, but yes. Like somebody in the restaurant that he was in, he was installing the cabinets in his bagel restaurant. Jesus. And he overheard him say that. Yeah. So the defense was trying to convince him to testify when yet another potential witness came forward. 
So a man named Scotty Glass had run in the same circle as Creedon Harris and Billy Ram, who was a third player that Harris had eventually named in the murder, but that Jay had been unable to track down. Scotty claimed that Jerry Stewerman had tried to hire him to, quote, do a number on Seymour Tancliffe to send him a message because he owed Stewerman money. In this instance, Jerry had said that Tancliffe owed him, and Glass asked, like, why don't you just have me collect the money then? It didn't make sense. So he actually passed the job along to Joe Creedon. Mm. So Scotty Glass basically was saying he was approached first, and he said no, and referred <laughs> Jerry along to Joe. The defense was able to get the cabinet guy to testify. Scotty Glass, however, never showed up. Luckily, another character from the drug circle emerged, a man named Joe Graydon. Again, like I said before, you don't need to pay attention to all these things necessarily. Just pay attention to the information that they're presenting. It's like this wild group of... Oh my god. I know, and just when I would be like, this is the guy that's going to break the case. They're like, and then along came <laughs> Joey Peanuts. And I'm like, fuck, God. <laughs> My listeners are going to be so confused and so tired. Well, it's just amazing that none of this came out. I mean, I guess they didn't investigate. So, of course, <sighs> this came out before. But, like, so many people talked to so many other people. And oh, it's just it endless. It stays quiet for 15 years. It's, it's endless. And there are yeah. details. I mean, there's, like, tons of details, again, that I'm not including because it's just, like, overwhelming. You could easily do a full series on this case. Right. So Joe Graydon had cleaned up his act over the years. And when he saw an article about Marty's case, he knew he had to testify. He claimed that Joe Creedon told him that one of the owner of Strathmore Bagels had hired him to have the other owner killed. It was supposed to happen at the bagel shop on a Sunday when Seymour usually picked up the money for the week, and it was supposed to look like a robbery. Joe Graydon said that at the time he had some sports bets coming due, and he'd recently reconciled with his wife who was getting really nervous about the debts that were owed, so he agreed to help with the crime for the money. Joe Creedon asked Joe Graydon to drive him, and when he arrived at the bagel shop, it was locked up and the lights were all off. Graydon was really relieved that he didn't have to participate in the crime, and when Creedon asked him to help again with the actual murder a couple of weeks later, he declined. Graydon said that when he'd read the article about Marty and knew he needed to come forward, he'd called the DA first to ask for the lawyer's number, and they wouldn't give it to him. <laughs> He's yeah. He said that he'd spoken to Walter Warkenthine, who was the man who'd also threatened Harris. Mm-hmm. Quote, I said I used to live with Joey Creedon. He said, quote, did you see him do it? I said, no. Then he said that is speculation. I said, no, it's not. Two plus two is four. The kid didn't do it. And then he started to get wise and angry with me. <laughs> <laughs> I want somebody to get wise with me. I mean, I, I also don't want to start saying things like that. Like two plus two equals four. I know it's just <laughs> try it on my children. I'll <laughs> start there. See how it feels. I know. And your oldest will just like bust out some like quantum physics and be like, mm-hmm. actually mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Thanks to Graydon's testimony. Another woman came forward that was referred to as Danielle Nichols. That's not a real name. She told Jay that she'd been a teen when she worked at the bagel shop, was friends with Todd, and was fully aware of his drug operation. She asked Todd why he'd never got caught, and, quote, he said the police were paid off. 
I wasn't sure I believed him. I saw him dealing drugs, but I never saw him paying the police. One day, a man came into the store and went behind the counter with Todd's father. Quote, Jerry put his arm around him and called him his card partner, she recalled. Then they went into the little office at the back of the store where Jerry had his safe. One of the people working in the store told me that this guy, Jerry's card partner, was a police detective. Hmm. At first, I was nervous for Todd with a detective being back there. I was young and naive then. Then I got a chill because I realized that maybe Todd was telling me the truth about the police being paid off. I didn't see it, but it all kind of added up in my mind. When the tank lifts were murdered and Jerry went missing, quote, Todd said he knew where his father was and that he was fine. He said the day before he disappeared, he took all the cash he kept in the safe. When they found Jerry in California and brought him back, he was in the papers and the TV with the police, and immediately I recognized the detective. Mm. James McCready. Fuck. Fuck. God. He was the one I, I mean, saw. I mean, I figured that right? he had to, like, he was in bed with somebody, but. Yep. He was the one I saw in the bagel store that day with Jerry. I even yeah. said something to Todd and he laughed. He said, quote, yeah, they sent my father's friend out to get him. God. She froze up when they asked her to sign an affidavit and testify, but luckily her information would help corroborate another witness who came forward just a few days later. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then Jeremy Francisco shows up. It's just like, oh my God, endless. I mean, thank God. Thank God so many well, people I mean, came like you forward. Get to a, right. You get to a certain point where you cannot ignore it anymore. Mm -mm. Right? Like mm -mm. when you just are like, here's what, exactly what happened, DA. Oh, oh, my God. Well, just wait. Just strap your little panties oh, yeah. on. So Lenny Lebrano saw a documentary about the case on Court TV, which included an interview with James McCready. And in that moment, he realized the same thing that Danielle had that McCready's relationship with Jerry was not common knowledge as they both thought it was. So when the, when the defense was like, why didn't you come forward? They're like, we thought everybody knew. They were always together. Like they were mm. always out in the open as friends and like partners. Right. McCready had a side business building houses and would frequent Lenny's Pizza Restaurant to buy lunch for his crew. He also eventually realized that he recognized McCready from Strathmore Bagels as Lenny had sold their bagels wholesale to restaurants through his previous business. So Lenny loved watches and remembered seeing McCready's Rolex when he chatted with Jerry in the bagel shop. He also remembered that McCready had done some construction work for Jerry. Lenny testified to all of this, and the defense also brought in McCready's sworn testimony that he hadn't known Jerry prior to the Tankliff murders. That dirty dog, man. The dirty son of a bitch. The defense also pointed out that McCready had twice been represented by the district attorney, Tom Spoda, so there was a clear conflict of interest. They, quote, intended to move for the disqualification of the DA's office and the appointment of a special prosecutor. Mm -hmm. A third person also came forward to testify about the friendship between Jerry McCready, and the defense submitted a motion for a special prosecutor to the judge. They included in the motion the SIC's allegation that Spoda and his law partner Sullivan were, quote, implicated in an arrangement to kick back a percentage of their fees to an assistant district attorney and police officers who referred drunk driving cases to them. <sighs> Two police officers had testified to this being true. Spoda's office had done nothing when the original motion had been filed and additionally had intimidated Harris through Walter Warkenthine and other inmates. 
Additionally, they refused to grant Harris immunity and never interviewed Joe Graydon. In the prosecution's response to these allegations, they included an affidavit that was dated the day that they'd filed the response that essentially disclosed that Spoda's partner had represented the Stewerman family for Todd's second drug charge after he and Spoto were no longer partners, but he'd actually been hired before they'd split their partnership. So by law, the Stewermans had been Spoda's clients too. Wow. So I know that's a fuck ton of information, but basically they were like, okay, we got to file this response. Oh, by the way, we're suddenly disclosing on this day that we're filing this response that there might be this conflict of interest because... Spoda's previous partner had represented the Stewermans, and they claimed that it was after they'd split their partnership, but it was not. So Mm -hmm. clear conflict of interest. None of this had been revealed by Spoda until after the defense moved for his disqualification, nearly a year after the proceedings began. According to a law professor who had nothing to do with the case, but was studying it, quote, the conflicts at play were intricate, severe, and irreconcilable, not even a close call. The entire Suffolk County District Attorney's Office is disqualified. Mm-hmm. But the judge disagreed. <laughs> of course he did. Quote, Spoda's past representation of McCready may appear to be the appearance of an impropriety to the layman, the judge wrote, but it had, quote, nothing to do with the case. He said it was solely the job of the defense to find new evidence, not the DA. Quote, to Barkett, who was Marty's defense lawyer, it confirmed what he had been told by a well-connected person he knew in the Suffolk courthouse. Quote, you're going to lose. <sighs> they let you have the hearing so they can bleed you dry. Then Braslow, who is the judge, will shoot you down and they'll be rid of this kid forever. That's the plan. While they lost their plea for a special prosecutor, they gained time to find more witnesses as their hearing was delayed for three months. Luckily, one came forward. (laughs) I don't believe it. (laughs) I, dude. When Harris had originally... And also, can you fucking imagine being his defense team and Saul Peter? And you're just like months and months and months just waiting, waiting, waiting for all these things to fall into place. I just... I send out emails for my job all the time and it takes people like three days to respond and I'm a fucking wreck. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So when Harris had originally written down his statement about the night of the murder, he'd mentioned a man named Bill Ram. And Saul Peter had gone to work to find him, but hadn't heard back. He finally received a call that he'd been waiting for. Saul Peter immediately took a flight to Tampa to meet Ram and interview him. Ram said he'd grown up getting in trouble with Harris and Kent and knew Creedon, who is a little older from around the neighborhood. They all became friends after high school. After years of drugs and crime with his old crew, he had also cleaned up his act, and at the time he was selling timeshares, had purchased a house with his girlfriend, and was doing quite well for himself. Ram confirmed that Kent, Harris, and Creedon had been at his house the night of the murders and had asked to use his mother's newer Honda so that they would be less conspicuous in the upscale neighborhood. They'd wanted him to come with and, quote, straighten out a Jew in the bagel business, but he refused. They did some crack at Ram's house and then left in Harris's beat-up car to go to the tank lifts. The next day, Harris stopped by Ram's house and told him that Joe and Peter came out of the house looking totally freaked out, covered in blood, and had burned their clothes. 
His account perfectly corroborated Harris's story. Ram was, quote, articulate and credible, and he would come across much better than Harris would have. Jay asked him to testify, and miraculously, he agreed. Good. His girlfriend had convinced him that it was the right thing to do, and she would also testify after him to confirm what he was saying. Wow. Jay also asked Ram to meet with Kent to try to get more information, but not much came from the meeting except for Kent saying to Ram that he should, quote, keep his mouth shut when it came to the case. Ram did very well on the stand, and his testimony perfectly lined up with the information Harris had given them, including Harris's claims that he'd only thought they were pulling off a burglary and had no knowledge of a murder. He testified that he'd come forward because of the thought of Marty being in jail for something he hadn't done had been weighing on him, and not only was he not getting anything for it, he was pretty sure the testimony would hurt his parole. Mm. Later that night, a call came through to the prepaid cell phone that Jay had given Ram. So he'd given them the phone to use while they were waiting for trial, and then Ram had given it back to Jay. Jay answered it, and it was Kent, clearly furious at Ram for testifying. Jay was struck with the thought that maybe he could convince Kent that his best chance would be to get out in front of everything and blame it all on Joe Creedon. So he left Kent a message and then Kent called back, claiming that Ram had told him that he was being paid $50,000 for his testimony and that he was going to forward a tape of their call to the prosecution. Hmm. And Jay was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) It was was not paying Ram $50,000 for his testimony. And it was pretty clear, you know, that Kent was setting it up, like getting this phone call with Jay to send to the prosecution so they could claim that Ram had been paid for his testimony. Right. So the prosecution called Kent to the stand and he claimed he couldn't have been involved with the murders because he was charged with an armed robbery that had occurred on the same night. Hmm. The issue with his claim was that the robbery occurred 18 hours after the poker game had ended, leaving more than enough time for both crimes to occur. Kent claimed he was sleeping with Harris's wife, and that's why he'd been included in his recollections of the murder. So he said that Harris was just doing it to get back at him. Hmm. He claimed that another inmate had a beef with Creedon and was going to pin the murders on him and went to Harris to see if there was anyone else who could be included, and Harris pointed Kent, which is so <laughs> fucking convoluted, I know. I mean, this is like this is what the prosecution is doing, just like... Hmm. <laughs> Like, making shit up. He also said that Rammed claimed he was getting paid by Saul Peter and he'd get $50,000 if he testified too. He claimed that the night that they met up, they got heroin and crack and got high, and that days later, Kent sat with work and dine at the DA's office and tried to get Ram on tape talking about the $50,000 but had been unable to reach him. Saul Peter confirmed with Western Union that it wasn't even possible to set up the kind of account that Kent claimed Ram had to get the money. Um, And unfortunately, after testifying, Ram went on a robbery spree that ended him back in prison for a really long time. So, of course, the prosecution used this as an opportunity, and Warkenthine reached out and said that if Ram testified that he was bribed, the DA's office would try to get his sentence reduced. Of course. But, luckily, Ram stuck to his story and denied any bribery and put it into a sworn statement for the defense, which was entered as evidence of witness tampering and slander. Wow. 
His refusal also added to his credibility as he was offered a chance at a reduced sentence and refused it, sticking to his word. It's crazy. Like I know bank sprees and then you still have your morals. Like, right. I know. We're still like, right. no man, this kid really didn't do it. We, these wow. guys really did it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of incredible. Well, and then Jay felt awful because the whole thing, like Ram was doing really well. And then he set him up with Kent and they did a bunch of heroin and crack. And then Ram just went like off completely <laughs> off the deep end. Wow. Yes. So Jay was like, Jesus, that backfired. Meanwhile, Scotty Glass resurfaced and had found an attorney who shared an office with the judge's father and another man who were both, quote, key political patrons of Spoda. He also happened to be good friends with the prosecution. So if you'll remember, Scotty Glass came to the defense a long time ago and was like, I need an attorney. And they were like, Mm -hmm. too bad, we can't give you one, but testify for us. And he was like, nah. So then then the prosecution fucking gets a hold of him. Mm -hmm. Scotty had a rap sheet a mile long and several open charges, but was released without bail after he told the judge who his lawyer was. He then said that he'd made up his testimony to Marty's defense. Marty's defense immediately brought the story as it was clear witness tampering to Newsday to be published. Scotty was brought to testify at the hearing. The defense walked him through his new story. And when questioned about whether he'd made a deal with the DA, the judge shut down the line of questioning. What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sadie, it's rigged. This whole fucking thing is rigged. <laughs> God. <laughs> a man named Mark Callahan read an article about Scotty changing his story and wrote a letter to Marty. Mark had been friends with Scotty as kids and said that Scotty told him that he was offered the Tankliff murders on a couple of occasions. He also told him specifically that he'd passed the job to Joe Creedon. He'd said that Scotty turned down the work because he was spooked by serious violence and often got teased for having nightmares about a shooting he was involved in. He said he'd seen Scotty over the summer and that he told him he was considering testifying for the defense. He later ran into him in prison. Quote, he said he's not going to go through with what he originally was going to go through and that he was helping you guys. And in more words than one, he pretty much put it that the district attorney is putting pressure on him to change his statement and that he's looking at a lot of time because he was charged with armed robbery. He didn't exactly say who, but he said somebody told him that if he goes through with it, they're going to make it tough for him. And he's a two-time violent felony offender as it is, so he's looking at 25 to life. Quote, but Scotty didn't spend a single day in prison. Eight months later, the armed robbery charge disappeared, as did the lesser offenses. Yeah. I I know. Okay. Yeah. On February 2005, the hearing to decide whether Marty's convictions would be vacated and a new trial held finally came to a close. A few days after the hearing ended, Jay received a call from Terry, who is Joe Creedon's previous girlfriend and the mother of his son. Terry and her son got on the phone with Jay and said Joe had told them something the night before that they wanted to share, but they were absolutely terrified to do so. Joe Creedon's son, who was named Joe Jr., was surrounded by violence from the time he was born. Quote, I remember walking into the house and seeing him, meaning his father, Joe Creedon, having my mom by the throat up against the wall. Mm. One time when we were at my Aunt Marianne's house, I looked out the window My mom was sitting on the swing set, and he just punched her in the mouth. She started crying. She had a tooth in her hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. Terry eventually took the kids, changed their last name, and essentially went into hiding with them. 
Several years later, Joe Jr. was able to track down his father through a mutual friend, and they spoke on the phone, both crying, which was uncharacteristic for the pair. Joe Creedon began sending his kids money and presents, and eventually Terry caught on that he was back in their lives. Terry was scared but agreed to let them see their father, and he sounded like a changed man when they spoke. He claimed he was clean and ran an auto body shop. Joe Jr. met up with his father, and they had a really good time. There were no signs of the old Joe, and things went really smoothly. They met up again after a family funeral brought Joe Jr. to Long Island, and they spent some time together driving around town. The elder Joe admitted to his son that he was still collecting money for drug runners and brought him to his grandmother's house where he showed him a folder full of documents on his mother, Terry, and her husband. Mm. He told his son that the only reason he hadn't had them killed yet was because it would traumatize Joe Jr. Oh, God. He then showed him a case full of jewelry and stacks and stacks of cash and told him if he left his mother to live with him, he could have anything he wanted. Joe Jr. asked his father about the Tankliff murders. And Joe showed him a bag containing a gun, a pair of handcuffs, and ankle shackles. Quote, this is for Harris if he testifies. He then pulled three more guns out from under a mattress. On the way back to be dropped off, Joe Jr. pressed his dad even further. Quote, he got very serious and said, yeah, I did it. And then he began telling me how he did it. He said it was him, Peter Kent, and Glenn Harris, but that Harris didn't go in with them. He said his buddy Todd, his dad, was waiting and gave them a signal and that he and Peter Kent went into the house. He said he brought a brake cable from a bicycle that had the cover stripped off and that he used it to choke the man. They hit him with a snub nose thirty eight special. He said Kent stabbed the lady in the bed. His father continued to ramble about that night, revealing details like he'd seen Marty asleep in the bed, which would explain the blood that the detectives had found on the light switch. He said that they'd had to go back to retrieve the pipe that they'd forgotten and that they'd gone back to a guy named, quote, Ronnie Reefer's house to burn the clothes in his basement. And most shocking of all, he revealed that Jim Creedy was paid $100,000 to protect the murderers. Oh, my God. <laughs> Booyah! <laughs> wow. Quote, he said that they were friends and still talked now and then, Joe later said, and he was still in touch with Jerry Stewerman. Joe Jr. learned all of this three months before the hearing started, but stored it away, terrified of what would happen to his mother. One night, ten months later, he burst into tears and told her everything. Ugh. I just can't even imagine. No! <laughs> no. And he's like a kid. He's a little teenager. Jesus. Yep. All of Marty's defense team flew to Florida immediately to meet with Terry and Joe Jr. and hear the story. It took Joe Jr. five more months, but eventually, five months, they waited. <laughs> but eventually he agreed to give a sworn testimony and testify in court. Wow. I mean, once again, I wait three days for like an email about a fucking video and I'm fucking right. wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, they decided to omit one area of Creedon's omissions, his statements that Jim McCready was paid $100,000 and that he still kept in touch with both him and Stewerman. Marty's lawyers wanted to keep that under wraps until Joe testified. Mm -hmm. Of course the prosecution claimed Joe Jr.'s testimony was a lie and a little too late to be admitted. Quote, they can call as many incredible witnesses as they like. Marty Tancliffe killed his parents, and the misfits that Tancliffe's attorneys have dredged up cannot change that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The judge found no reason to bar Joe Jr.'s testimony, and he scheduled it for November 14, 2005. Unfortunately, the prosecutor was hospitalized just as everyone was settling into the courtroom. <laughs> like, they thought he had a stroke. Like, everybody's there, like, ready to hear this explosive testimony, and he's like, oh, my heart, I gotta go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so his testimony was postponed for a month. Jesus. I know. Joe Jr. finally testified and recounted everything his father had told him, and then the defense dropped the bombshell that they'd held back from the affidavit, that Joe was best friends with the son of Jerry Stewerman, and that McCready and Jerry were friends, and McCready had been paid to protect the murderers. The prosecution cross-examined, but were unable to break Joe Jr. or disqualify his statements, even though they tried. So on St. Patrick's Day 2006... Marty's entire legal team obsessively refreshed the Suffolk County Court Administration website, mm-hmm. waiting for the judge's rulings to post. Jay Saul Peter couldn't get the site to work. Quote, <laughs> it had been more than five years since Marty first wrote Saul Peter, 16 since he went into prison, and now it was a minute past noon. Saul Peter couldn't get on the website. <laughs> he called, I know. I would die. I would die. <laughs> He called Meg Griffin at Barker Botts in Washington. She was crying. Quote, we lost, Saul Peter said. Meg, listen, we're not giving up. This wasn't unexpected. We knew we weren't going to win Suffolk County. Now we get it out of there. What did the decision say? Denied everything? That's just amazing. We're not finished, believe me. He's going to come home. The judge's ruling was worded much like everyone that came before him in Suffolk County. Quote, the defendant has introduced what he has characterized as newly discovered evidence, which consisted mainly of testimony from a cavalcade of nefarious scoundrels paraded before this court, and on and on and on, Mm. discounting all of the witnesses for reasons fed to him by the prosecution, very few of which had any bearing in reality. The judge also concluded that, quote, most of the new evidence would be barred by hearsay rules if they were to be a new trial. Apart from that debatable conclusion, the law took that factor out of the equation in an, quote, actual innocence claim, the theory being that innocence ultimately trumps procedure. So the judge was required to consider all the evidence presented, including hearsay, in determining whether there was a, quote, clear and convincing evidence of innocence. In making this judgment, he relied heavily on a single observation. Nothing had been taken from the Tankleff's house. Quote, this court finds it hard to believe that characters such as Creedon and Kent would not have looked for something to steal. <laughs> I wrote, I actually dropped my Kindle when I read that. Oh, my, <laughs> my God. God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And the book outlines, like, basically every single point that he tore apart and every ev- witness and what he said about them. It's fucking oh. incredible. Yeah. Yep. So meanwhile, Marty's PR team had been building an amazing following through their blog, martytankliff.org, the 48-hour spots, and even a documentary made by a man who was a judge at the time of the conviction called, quote, A Question of Guilt, The Martin Tankliff Story. High school friends and strangers began writing Marty in prison, and one friend from high school named Mark, who was a Yale graduate, became obsessed with researching Marty's case. He was especially taken by Marty's bright demeanor, quote, When we would meet, he never seemed self-conscious about his prison clothes, and he always welcomed me with a huge smile and a cheery attitude, a stark contrast to the somber people sitting around us in the visiting room. 
The news of the judge's order spread like wildfire, and the discussion board blew up with comments. At one point, McCready and Saul Peter went on the Dr. Phil show, and Saul like, Peter... So much time has passed that Dr. Phil yes. exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, like... I was starting my business in video production. Like, that's how recent this has become. Yes. So crazy. Yes. Went from me being a baby to me having a business. (laughs) (laughs) So at one point, McCready and Saltpeter were on the Dr. Phil show, and Saltpeter was running McCready through a series of questions to show that McCready was crooked. At one point, he brought up being paid $100,000 to protect the murderers, and McCready's response was, quote, no, that's not true. And if it were, that means he lost money. I mean, he only got paid $50,000 to do the murder. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right? What? So the defense team tried for months to get a tape of the comment. And when the show aired, the comment had been edited out. Of course it was. Yeah, the network didn't want to be held responsible for the Son remark. Son of a bitch. Can you man. believe that shit? No. <laughs> And when Jordan told me about my friend Jordan, whose father co-wrote this book with Jay Saltpeter, when he told me about the book, he mentioned like that his father had been working to like get more evidence out. And that was one of the pieces that he highlighted in this book that was sort of like an unknown piece. So in publishing this book, he was really trying to push the case like of McCready being a crooked piece of shit forward. And that was one of the pieces that he included purposefully. Meanwhile, a man named James Moore had been following the case and was confident Marty would get a new trial the whole time, because who the fuck wouldn't give him a new trial after all that was presented? So when he saw the shocking news that he wasn't getting a new trial, he knew that he had to come forward with what he knew. He'd worked with Kent for a pool company, and in 2002, the two got into a little altercation, and Kent said he'd kill James if he didn't back off. James called his bluff, and Kent claimed he'd killed the tank lifts with a pipe. Soon after, their foreman told them to get back to work. (laughs) A few months later, James and his family ran into Kent in line at a McDonald's. And when James asked Kent if he was going to get in trouble regarding the Tankcliffe murders, Kent immediately launched into talking about the murders and how they'd been paid to commit them. And then he wasn't worried about it because they would have kept him in jail if they had anything on him. Saltpeter met with James's boss at the time, who confirmed that Kent had worked for him and relayed that he'd sent Kent to a house to repair a pool, um, and they hadn't been able to repair it, and that when Kent came back, he mentioned that he'd been to the house before, but it hadn't been for a job. When the boss asked why, he said, quote, I had business there. Oh. It was the Tank Club house. Oh. So Marty's defense submitted another 440 motion that included all of this information, and it was, no big surprise, Denied. denied. God damn it. We're getting close, though, you guys. I swear to God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired of, you know. Sadie. Poor Marty Marty was in there for 17 years. I know. Imagine how he feels. Oh, my God. And this poor (laughs) Jay Saltpeter. Also, it should be noted that Jay Saltpeter did all this for $5,000. He agreed to work for $5,000. I think at another point, his family gave him, like, another check for, like, four grand for expenses. But, yeah, he essentially, he worked on this for nothing. And his whole, his whole defense team worked pro bono. Wow. So the defense team set up a tip line and a call came in from the wife of a friend of Danny Raymond. So Danny was Kent's alibi for the night of the murder, who Kent claimed that he and Danny had done the robbery together. So he was like, I couldn't have been there because I was committing this robbery that I actually got charged for. The friend's name was Culp, 
and he said that Kent spoke, quote, on numerous occasions about being involved in the Tankliff murders. He said that they'd hung out recently and that Raymond had said that, quote, Dan said Tankliff was innocent and he didn't want to get involved because this goes high up in the DA's office and the judge. Saulpeter tracked down Raymond, who said that Kent and the crew threatened to hurt his family if he didn't give him an alibi, so he complied and put everything into a signed affidavit. So basically, Raymond was like, yeah, he wasn't with me on that robbery. Mm-hmm. A new motion was filed, and this one raised the stakes. Quote, it accused the DA's office of not only shielding the true murderers in its defense of a conviction, but actually colluding with one of them to, quote, construct what we now know as a false alibi. Man. I know. The judge again denied the motion, but <laughs> but the formal request to the appellate division to accept an appeal was granted just a month after it was filed, what? which was incredibly quick. Yes. So on January 5th, 2007, a brief was submitted to the appellate division with the names of 11 attorneys, 11 attorneys from six different firms Quote, as the lawyers like to say, nobody ever leaves Marty's case. (laughs) It's incredible. And these kids had started as first year lawyers and they had grown into like big time attorneys from six different firms. I mean, when you look at the facts of the case, though, I, I know. can only imagine. Like, I know. You get the taste of it and you're like, I, I, I got, see. I have to see how this ends. Totally. Yeah. Multiple amicus briefs were also attached from additional innocence organizations. Quote, a brief was submitted by 30 former New York area prosecutors, assistant DAs in both Long Island counties and four of the five boroughs of New York City, as well as former assistant U.S. attorneys and New York attorneys general. Oh, my God. I don't use this term lightly, but I totally just got full body chills. Yet another brief was submitted jointly by three national and state criminal defense lawyers associations and two retired judges. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, it makes me even more scared of false imprisonment, though, because... Jesus, is this how hard you have to work to get out? Can you fucking believe that? And then the Queen of England. I know. And the President of the United States. (laughs) And then Jesus and God... I know, they're like, mm, bunch pretty of, sure Marty did it. <laughs> bunch of scoundrels. God. Marty had also written to the SIC who worked with Saul Peter to quietly open a new investigation into the conduct of the Suffolk County police and prosecutors from the time of the murders. Oh my God, quick side note. So Saul Peter was hired to work with James Gandolfini on The Sopranos. He was mm-hmm. like a fact checker for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he became good friends with James Gandolfini. And he was like, look, I'll work for you for free for the rest of your life if you'll come with me and meet this kid in jail. And so James, they surprised him. Like he just walks into the meeting room and James Gandolfini's sitting there and they like get to hang out and like had a good old time. (laughs) And then James Gandolfini like publicly spoke on Marty's behalf. I know. I love him. But I just thought that was so so sweet. Right? Yeah. So both sides argued their cases to the panels of judges. And in the meantime, yet another tip came from someone who knew Joe Creedon and had heard him relay information about the murders. That person called and spoke to Bob Doyle, who'd originally headed up the investigation. And a few days later, they'd gotten a visit from the prosecutor, goddamn Walter Workenthine, and another investigator. 
They relayed everything they knew, including that Joe had guns, a fake guards badge, handcuffs, etc. in his garage, and the prosecutor's team laughed off their allegations and defended Joe Creedon. Luckily, the defense team got this information on the final day of Marty's appeal. So the defense team waited and waited for a response to their appeal, and finally on December 21st, exactly seven years to the day that Saul Peter had gotten Marty's letter, to the day, wow. Jay caught a call from Gail Zimmerman from 48 Hours. Quote, Jay, I'm online, she says hesitatingly. I think they reversed the conviction. I'm reading it. I think that's what it says. <laughs> sure enough, they finally won, and the motherfucking conviction was vacated. I know. <laughs> Marty's defense lawyer called him to give him the good news, and quote, Marty took a deep breath, then offered up his unique brand of understatement. Finally, he said, Finally, justice starts to tilt our way. (laughs) (laughs) I know, Marty. Marty. Quote, Saul Peter called Cheryl in tears. We won, he said, and he kept saying it. He made another call and then another. We won. Conviction vacated. New trial. We overturned a jury verdict without DNA. We fucking won. Wow. The decision was unanimous between the four judges who heard the case, and they were very critical of the hearing judges' rulings. Marty had to spend six more days in prison, and on his last night inside, he wrote letters. Quote, Dear Jay, by the time you get the... Oh, it's going to make me cry. And me too. I know, I know what you're going to say. I know. <laughs> Dear Jay, by the time you get this letter, I should have been able to hug you and thank you properly in person. But I really wanted you to know how thankful I am for you coming into my life. I still remember when you wrote me the letter about getting ready for the roller coaster ride. Never could I imagine it would have so many twists, turns, loops, upside down twists, and more. (laughs) (laughs) But the ride is nearing an end, and it's all because of you and your dedication and hard work. Lonnie has joked often that he wants me out of jail so he can get rid of me. (laughs) Well, I'm letting you know that you'll never get rid of me for life. Since you've given my life back, I don't want to cut this short, but I have to finish getting ready for my last few hours in a prison and get ready to spend some very, very long overdue quality time with family, in parentheses, that means you, and friends. Love, Marty. (laughs) Oh, Marty. Marty. Oh, God. So Marty arrived at the courthouse the next day where Gottlieb and his family and supporters gathered. Some of his family members were singing, um, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. (laughs) Of course they were. I know. Um, And the same judge who denied his request for a new trial sheepishly set him free. Marty said, quote, I'm not a convicted felon anymore. I can vote. Oh, buddy. (laughs) Quote, after 6,338 days in prison, Marty was free. Holy shit, man. So news broke of the SAC's investigation, and there was a huge outcry for Spoda to step aside and appoint a special prosecutor. He did one better by announcing that he wouldn't retry Marty, but would also not reopen the case. Quote, The manner in which Arlene and Seymour Tancliffe were killed is totally inconsistent with a hit or burglary, as has been suggested. 
Nevertheless, for legal and factual reasons, the prosecution against the defendant is over. Governor Spitzer then announced in a surprising twist that State Attorney General Andrew Cuomo would take over the investigation of the case, and he said that he would start from the beginning and see where the evidence led he and his team. So unfortunately, this essentially put Marty back in limbo, as Spoda would have just dismissed all charges. So while Marty waited once again for the outcome of the rest of his life, he enrolled in Hofstra University, where his parents had the trust. (laughs) His uncle was like, might as well, just waiting for you. Where he studied philosophy and sociology and also spent time studying, quote, the changes in New York's law on depraved indifference murder charges at his defense lawyer's office. Wow. Yeah, that was one of the, I think they claimed he killed his mother with depraved indifference. Right. So on June 30th, 2008, everyone was summoned to the courthouse and the announcement was made, quote, after extensive review, the attorney general has determined that although there is some evidence that the defendant, Martin Tankliff, committed the crimes charged, after 20 years, the evidence is insufficient to conclude or to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did so. Mm. Quote, Marty was not to be retried. And no one else was to be prosecuted either. Again, I won't go into every detail, but there was even more evidence unearthed that McCready was working to cover up the murders for his friend Jerry, including information that off-duty police officers were working security at the bagel shop for Todd's drug business in the middle of the night. Yep. They also found evidence of a knife print that didn't match any of the knives in the house and had never been entered into evidence. Oh my God. On July 22, 2008, a state Supreme Court justice dismissed all charges against Marty Tankcliffe and the murder of his parents, Arlene and Seymour Tankcliffe. Marty was finally, officially free. Yay! (laughs) So in March of 2009, Marty filed a federal civil wrongful conviction lawsuit against the state of New York and the Suffolk County Police Department and several officers, including McCready. In January 2014, the state of New York settled for $3.375 million, and in 2018, Suffolk County settled for $10 million. Sweet. Sweet. In 2014, Tankliff graduated from Turo Law Center and subsequently passed the New York bar exam. Quote, <laughs> I know, quote, following his release from prison 13 years ago, Tankliff graduated from Turo Law Center in Central Islip in 2014 and in recent years has taught at both Turo and Georgetown University and worked as a paralegal at a Manhattan law firm. After he passed the bar exam in 2017, he faced a long approval process for admittance to the state bar, said Barry Sheck, co-founder of the Innocence Project, who, along with former Judge Barry Kamins, represented Tankliff pro bono during the bar admissions process. Quote, He's already done extraordinary things, said Sheck, Uh, referring to Tankliff's work with Georgetown students to exonerate a wrongfully accused defendant from Buffalo. Quote, he has continued to be a very active spokesperson, a mainstay in the innocence movement. A lot of exonerees have been active in trying to reform the system, and Marty has always been outstanding in that way. He was sworn into practice law in New York in February of 2020. No. 
<laughs> I know. Quote, when Martin Tankliff stepped forward Wednesday to sign the attorney roll book just minutes after being sworn in as a newly minted lawyer in New York, he met eyes for a moment, he says, with one of the appellate division second department justices who had voted in 2007 to overturn his wrongful murder conviction. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm like fully crying now. Marty is married and lives happily with his wife and daughter. Jerry Stewartman continues to deny his involvement in the murders and has never been charged. Detective James McCready died in 2015 at the age of 68. Mm. And that is the story of the fucking incredible case of the deaths of Seymour and Arlene Tankliff and the wrongful conviction of their poor sweet son Marty wow, wow. incredible it's just like arm chills like chills. <laughs> all the chills up and down anger chills furiousness chills sadness chills <laughs> happiness chills wow Courtney I feel like it's I don't know we just went on a epic saga there man <laughs> yeah tell me about it I'm not kidding that was like 50 hours of wow. work probably yeah. yeah it was unbelievable i it, had i known <laughs> in the beginning what i was getting myself into and okay formally apologizing to jay saltpeter richard firstman martin tankliff anybody involved in this case for all of the things that i got wrong or excluded inadvertently or you know like please forgive me I am sorry. <laughs> I hope to God that I didn't screw up too much, but no, you did an incredible thank job. Thank you. I love it's a very complicated story, and you told it in probably less than three hours. It's <laughs> incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really, really, really love that story. When I first read about it, I was like, "Holy God, this is yeah, a perfect true crime so story." It. It's a perfect true crime story, right? It's right. got everything well, you, you want. It's one again, one of those that I'm always so surprised when we find stories like this that aren't really talked about. I know. You know. I know. Amazing. I know. I think it's because people start reading Richard's brilliant book and are like, fuck that. <laughs> it's so much. Yeah. It's well, so much. Well, it's hard when, I mean, I think a lot of people have a hard time with uh, wrongfully convicted stories that are so heart-wrenching. Yeah. And then to find out that nobody is held accountable is just maddening oh it's so hooray for marty and yeah fuck everybody everybody else yes (laughs) well and i looked at marty's facebook he's got a facebook page and he's just actively going after all these wrongful convictions there's a kid in i can't remember where they are but there's two cases in particular he's working on really hard and he's like making videos with his students at georgetown university about the cases and talking about how covid has like stalled their progress but they're still after it and it's just like i'm so proud of him yeah again you know like grabbing the bull by the horns yeah wow i know unbelievable no what a good boy what a good boy his parents have got to be so proud seriously (laughs) you know sweet marty so yeah let's wow i don't even know let's have a cheers to that yeah (laughs) (laughs) well and we'll definitely put the innocence project on one of our um if you join our patreon every 
what do we say, every 50 out of $1,000, we're going to donate to a nonprofit, starting with, what's her, help me. Aliana. Thank you, Aliana DeFries Foundation. But after we give them some hundreds of bucks, I think we should move over to the Innocence Project, because this really drove home to me how impossible the system is. Once you're in it, it's goddamn near impossible to get out of it. So Yeah, that's the truth. Well, so that's want to do any quick businesses Quick i don't businesses. even want to like move past it i feel like we should just sit on it forever I, but yeah we should also go eat dinner <laughs> <laughs> i'll let you go eat dinner i ate some fried rice before i got in here because that's smart i, I know i should have prepared better no, that's all right um we won't keep you too long i did just quickly want to touch on one business we did get a review that pointed out that we never talked about in the case of hannah what's her last name i'm so sorry williams in the case yeah, of williams. hannah williams thank you that we didn't talk about the inherent racism involved in the relationship between her parents her adoptive parents and her and you know like he's reading that review i was like huh? but then you know you think back on it and i think that i'm just like screaming and vomiting my feelings and my you know perception of the case and then going back to it you're like no i never actually said that her parents were racist and they were. So just mm-hmm. I want to go on record by saying that Hannah Williams's parents were extremely racist and kind of the worst kind of racist, which is the kind that's all tricky and a hidden right. racism that's like covered up and justified with religion, which is well, f- and also like I'm I'm not racist. I I'm a hero. Yes. African children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is so disgusting. And yes, we kind of touched on it and. I think we hesitated because I don't want to sound like I think that all adoption is bad and I don't think all interracial adoption is bad and I don't think all international adoption is bad, but I think that there are tons and tons of cases of white people, specifically white fundamentalist Christian people being like, I'm going to go to this like savage place, you know, Mm -hmm. and save these children Mm -hmm. from this godless land. And it's disgusting. Don't do that. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't understand why that's racist, because it's a little confusing, please reach out and I'm happy to explain it more. But it's essentially like somebody thinking, you know, and they said, like the other kids said, she wasn't quote unquote trained and they were. And, you know, all these things that they were saying are implying that they are less than because they are black or they come from this African country or, you know, it's it's implying a million different things. Um, Mm -hmm. All of those are deeply seated in racism so i think too that often something that you and i as we do this podcast have to learn that you we know each other so well exactly that i find myself like you understand what i mean yep yep (laughs) and we forget that we then take the things that we understand between each other and put it out to the world yes who turns out doesn't have the same relationship that we have with each other that's exactly right So it's something that we're going to work on. You know, I think that it's just part of the process of getting feedback, receiving it, and then learning from it. Absolutely. And I'm not going to respond to every, you know, review. And I can't, we can't just constantly be tormented by what other people think of us. But that review is like, oh, shit, that's a valid point. Like, I Mm -hmm. think that everybody understands that that's where I'm coming from. And they don't, you know, y'all don't know me. Sometimes it's, it's also not enough to understand it it's important to say it out loud yeah to actually say the words so thank you for that feedback dear reviewer if you're still listening you might not be because you're like that's not good enough for me (laughs) totally understandable so yeah 
And something that we've also talked about real briefly is that, uh, I mean, leave all the reviews you want. If you want to have a conversation with us about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we really are open to constructive feedback and criticism yep. and would love to learn. Yeah. Um, so if you want to actually talk to, uh, or put, you know, put it out there in a place that we can respond to you and learn more, yep. email us find us on Instagram, Facebook. I mean, we are we are actually the ones that look at those things and yes. respond to them. Uh, we're very open to that. So yeah, for sure. Just know that we we see our reviews on Apple. Uh, we that's all we yeah. can look at them and uh, would love to have more conversations if people want to do that. Absolutely. Because we're dealing with a lot of different stories, you know, from a million different cultures and communities and places that we don't have access to and are very aware mm-hmm. of the responsibility and sort of the precariousness of what we're doing. And so, yeah, it's something we have to remain open to. And we again, I don't want to like let reviews. If somebody's like, I don't like your voice like that, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like your face. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like your writing style. Um, But, you know, we, yeah, we want to hear from people who are affected by these things and try to remain sensitive, not to the point of being paralyzed by what we're doing, because that's where, you know, that's where the danger comes in is just be like, Mm -hmm. we're never going to do it right. So we can't do it at all. It's more like, okay, we're going to do the best we can sincerely and continue to, you know, like, check in and be better and do better acknowledge that we're imperfect and we're i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah no yes you're absolutely right i'm imperfect (laughs) i'll admit it (laughs) yep yeah but willing to learn and want to grow while we do this absolutely it really means so much to us yeah fuck yeah and you all mean so much to us and the people that we report on mean so much to us so that's so true you are little eccles cakes Mm mm-hmm I love you guys. Yeah, I do too. So, I really do. Um, I think that's it, really. I'm going to have a giveaway coming up, but I had to get through this case first. It's all I've been doing for days and days and days. But look on Instagram probably this weekend. I'll start that process if you're not all like sitting in the sun on Memorial Day getting white claw wasted, <laughs> which is what you should be doing. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we'll be in touch about those details soon. And... If you get bored on your Memorial Day weekend, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at They Will Kill. Our website is theywillkill.com, and you can email us your criticisms, compliments, questions, case recommendations at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. Please, please. Oh, oh on apple or wherever i think that anyway yeah mostly apple Apple, but anywhere you listen yep thank you to aj bergantz for our music thank you very much we love your sweet face very much brilliant mind yep and your Uh, dancing fingers like what do you say about piano players (laughs) (laughs) glorious ivory tickler oh god (laughs) (laughs) we love you remember and remember oh god i had one don't ever say ivory ticklers. <laughs> yeah, just don't. Just wipe that from your memory. Remember to not remember that, as that was right. pretty gross. Yeah, you can send me a review to say, Sadie, don't ever say that <laughs> again. I, I will take that criticism. And Put it in your mem- storehouse of common knowledge. That's what our teacher used to say. Put that in your storehouse of common knowledge. <laughs> 
Okay, guys, we love okay, you. We'll for see you next time. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>